I got to say that I get a chance to talk with lots of other pastors and uh, talk to them about how their church is going and great things they see in their church. And I've got to share with you that um, just seeing this this morning, um, I would say that I'm probably the envy of a lot of other pastors this morning, um, that this is just great to see this. I would say that uh, you pick one of those big mega churches that is on TV and they are, they are probably jealous of what you just got to see, that I don't know of any place that has this many guitars on one, on one stage at one time. Uh, so thank you. Uh, for Josh for, for building that and working with that. And thank you for the worship team for seeing the value of that. And th- thank you also for parents who uh, brought your kids to those practices and, and making sure that they were there and uh, using those talents. Um, but to that video, I, I will be honest with you. I've watched that video several times. And uh, many of you know that I am an avid ice cream eater. I love ice cream. And so <laughs> the sad thing about me watching that video is the only thing that goes through my mind is, man, what a waste of perfectly good ice cream is, is what I think about every time I see that. And I, I don't think you even have to be a picky eater or a selective palate or however you want to describe yourself that, uh, to be like that little girl and agree that there is nothing appetizing about eating a worm. They are slimy, they are wiggly, in fact they are just covered in dirt and uh, that's just enough to put most people off. And, and so for most people... And it doesn't matter if you add a scoop of ice cream to the top of it. It's not enough uh, to make you want to eat a worm. It's, uh, it's, it, you can add all the toppings you want to, the chocolate syrup, the whipped cream. You can add all that stuff to it. Uh, but deep underneath, there is still this worm. And for most of us, even though we just know that that worm is on that plate, even though it may not be what we're getting ready to eat, but for some of us, just the fact that it's touched the good stuff is enough for us not to want the ice cream and not to want the toppings. And so uh, that even though you can put all this stuff on it, it is still this gross worm. And and it can be covered with ice cream, it can be covered with sprinkles, uh, but it's still just as gross with ice cream as it is without ice cream. It's still just as uninviting um, as it is with whipped cream as it is without whipped cream. And it doesn't matter if you put a cherry on top, doesn't matter if you dress it up, it is still a worm that is on that plate. And for many of us, we wouldn't even imagine of taking this unappetizing, slimy, wiggly worm that's covered in dirt and putting it in our mouth. We just wouldn't do it because at the end of the day, a worm is still a worm, no matter how you dress it up. And the same is true, as it said in that video with our sin. Regardless of how we try to dress up our sin, it is still sin. That we live, unfortunately, in this culture, in this society that is so accepting and really so dismissive of sin. That we live in this, this idea and this time in our, our history where we almost have become accepting of sin. And we kind of even make it this, uh, that it's really not a big deal. And you may have heard, well, it's just, it's just a little sin, right? Like, it's, it's really not a big deal. And so we'll even justify them by ranking them. And uh, whatever my sin is, it's really not as bad as though as somebody else's sin. And we forget that sin is still sin. It doesn't matter if yours is worse or better than somebody else's. In God's eyes, it is still sin. And we'll accept them. We'll even kind of make excuses for them. And uh, one of the excuses I hear all the time is, well, you know, I'm just a, uh, nobody's perfect, Right. I don't know if you've ever used that excuse, but we hear that excuse. My other favorite when we Christianize and be like, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I'm glad you acknowledge that you are a sinner saved by grace, but listen to me. What the Hebrew, or the writer of Hebrews is going to make very clear in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19 this morning, or excuse me, not 19, starting in verse 26 this morning, is that yes, you are a sinner saved by grace, and that should make a difference in your life. 
It is not a license to continue. It's not a, a, an option to continue in those sins and just claim grace as a coverall. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26 this morning. And the author is going to make it very clear to us that there's no such thing as just a little sin. There's no such thing as a sin that, that doesn't deserve justice and doesn't deserve punishment. And regardless of how we want to try to justify it, work around it, smooth it over, it is just as detestable and just as distasteful as it always been. And so we've been working through the book of Hebrews, and it's kind of addressing two different people in this passage. One of the groups it's addressing is people who are just on the edge of accepting Christ. People who are just kind of, is it really going to be worth it? Is Christ really all that I need, or do I need to go back to the Jewish laws? Is Christ really sufficient? Is He really supreme and superior? And so that's one group. He's going to kind of address this, that yes, He is. And then the other group is people who have already put their faith and trust in Christ, and yet they want to keep going back to their old way of life, whether their old way of life is through the Jewish faith or through, uh, through some other faith, or really just through non-faith at all. Let's go back and let's have Jesus and have life as we knew it once before. Right? And so he's really going to address both of these groups in this passage. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start in verse 26 and we'll read through verse 31. But Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 26, 6 says, For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God, Regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he is sacrificed, or by which he was sanctified, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And finally, verse 31 It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, our heart is overwhelmed not just with these young people, but God, that they will sing their talents and they will use their talents to worship you. God, it does our hearts good to hear young voices and young guitars playing about a Jesus who loves us like a hurricane. A God who loves us overwhelmingly. A God who loves us beyond our faults and our failures. And a God who loves us beyond our intentional rebellions against Him. And yet you overwhelm us with your amazing love. And so, God, this morning I pray that as we work through this passage, God, we are reminded over and over and over again of your grace. God, I'm reminded of in this passage, and I pray that we're reminded in this passage, God, of what sin really is, how bad it really has become in our lives. And God, we will yet so much more cling to the cross because of what you have done for us, because of the grace and mercy that you have poured out on it because of us, Father. And so, God, I'm praying that you speak this morning. I'm praying that you speak to those who, God, may just be on the cusp of accepting you. God, they, they've had these questions, they've had these doubts, and they've had these fears, and they've had these, these ideas that maybe, maybe you are the way. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will speak to them loud and clear. And God, today be the day that they know you are the way. But God, I pray for many of us sitting in here and watching online, God, that a long time ago we made that decision and we knew that true long time ago. 
God, I t- today I pray that it becomes so practical in our lives that the way you view sin really changes the way that we view it as well. God, I pray this morning that we don't walk out of here the same way that we walked in. God, I'm praying that what we have allowed in our life and the, the doors that we have allowed in our lives, God, that we will slam those shut to the sins that we keep going back to over and over and over again. And so, God, I pray that you speak to us. And God, I pray that we are obedient and we listen to not just the words with our ears, but with our heart and our soul and our mind as well. So, God, we leave here changed this morning, God, either for eternity or for the rest of the day and rest of our lives. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a parent, I am uh, sometimes surprised at the number of accidents that used to happen in our house. And I'm not talking about accidents where somebody falls or somebody trips or something like that. I'm talking about the, the, the accidents. And, and you may, this may happen in your house if you have more than one kid or you've had more than one kid playing in your house for a certain amount of time. But there's these accidents that happen that kind of work like this. Like well, the kids will be out playing or they'll be working together and all of a sudden one of them uh, or a couple of them will get upset at each other and then it becomes kind of elevated and one of them will come in and be like, they'll, they'll say something like, uh, you know, they, they were pushed over or they were hit and then they were knocked to the ground or something like this. And so um, we, we knew something was going on. We kind of heard the escalation and then we were letting it play out and then all of a sudden something happened. There was this physical part that got involved. And so then when that happens and one of them comes in and tells us that they got pushed over or hit or kicked or punched or whatever, we bring them in, we set them down, we look at kid number one, we say, all right, tell us what happened. And they're like, well, they, we were doing this and then they got mad and then they just got up and pushed me and pushed me over to the ground. And so then we'll look at the second kid and we'll be like, did you push your brother or sister, whichever one it may be at the time, and depending on the day, it could be either one of them. Did you, did you push your brother or sister to the ground? And they're like, no, I didn't. Well, so are they lying? Well, no. Wait, we're confused. So did they fall to the ground? Yes. They, they were laying on the ground when I came in. So how did they get on the ground? Well, it was an accident. There's the famous line. This is where all the accidents happen in our household. It was an accident. I didn't mean for it to happen. And we're like, wait, wait, wait. So we're going to have to back this up for just a moment. So tell me. What happened? Well, I got mad and I was getting up and, and I was just, they were in my way and so I, I just moved them out of my way. And we're like, wait, so time out. So explain to me which part of this is an accident because this is where we always land. There's this accident that happened. We're like, which part was an accident? Was it an accident that they fell over? And they're like, well, no, that wasn't the accident. Yes, that was the accident. Or was the accident that you pushed them? Well, no, I didn't push them. We're like, wait, well, the wind didn't push them. Somehow they fell over, and they fell over because you pushed them. Like, well, it was an accident. I didn't mean for this to happen. And so then we have this kind of moment of truth where we get to the the root of the situation. We're like, listen, what we're hearing is that we we kind of ask them this question: Did you did you put your hands on your brother or sister? And like, well, yes. Did you push them? No. Wait, we're confused. Like, all right, so you got your hand on them and you didn't push them. They just fell over. Well, I was getting up and, and maybe I leaned into them. We're like, that's called pushing. Okay? 
However you want to dress it up, however you want to disguise it, however you want to play this game, we can do this all day long. But the reality is that you push them because you were mad, and that's not an accident. Now, you may not have meant for them to fall over. You may not have meant for them to hit the ground. You may not have meant to push them that far. But the truth is they didn't wind up on the ground by accident. They wound up on the ground by deliberate action that you took. You deliberately put your hands on your brother or sister. You deliberately, (laughs) however you want to say it, leaned into them, extended your elbow however you want to phrase it, but you intentionally did that. Like your arms didn't just do it on your own. You purposely, intentionally did that. And so I say these accidents happened a lot when we had younger kids. They've started to happen less because what our kids have started to understand is that things happen and they don't really happen by accident. In fact, we label a whole lot of things that are accidents that are really the result of our deliberate action that, that we may not have meant or we may not have planned for the end result But we sure did make that end result happen by deliberate action that we took. That there was some intentionality in step one that just happened to lead into step two that happened to lead into step three. And I've got to share with you that as much as I talk about my kids, and we kind of joke about this at our house, that the, the kids um, provide a whole lot of good sermon illustrations for me. And they love it when I talk about them. They really don't. But they, they let me do it, and I don't really ask permission. I just do it anyway because I feed them and they live there. So... Welcome to the price of admission, right? So, but we, we talk about this stuff a lot at our house, and I get to share these examples with you at our house. But I want to share with you that my kids are young, but I've spent several years teaching high school and coaching soccer in high school for several years. And, and I know some of you work in high schools. You see the same thing in high school students, right? The things are, they're just, they're accidents, and I got to share with you that I got a chance to ride along with some of our, our, our men in blue uh, several months ago. And, and we went on this call and this guy was doing something just stupid. I can't give you all the details about it, but it was just an accident. And we're like, there, there's no accident here, dude. Like, this was, this was on purpose. And so my point in telling you that is that sometimes we, we see things in kids that should, like, fizzle out when people grow up, but they don't. They continue on when they get in high school, and then adults make these same excuses of it's just an accident. And so I'm getting to this point of, listen, there are a whole lot of things that even some of us sitting in this room will describe them as an accident that aren't really accidents. They're the result of an intentional, deliberate action that you and I took, but we'll dismiss it as an accident. And we do the same thing, whether it's an action or an inaction. We'll do the same thing if we're not careful, even with sin itself. And, and so we, we kind of dismiss sin because it was just an accident. I didn't mean for this to go this far. I didn't mean for this to happen like this. And I've got to share with you, there's a whole lot of people that find themselves at the end of a dead-end road of sin who didn't mean for this to happen. It was just an accident. But the reality is that they put themselves on that road and they drove down that road. And in fact, they enjoyed that road for a really long time until the road ran out. And for some of the folks, it is a broken marriage. For some of the folks, it's an addiction. For some of the folks, it is a broken home. For some of the folks, it is just an anger issue that, that we have driven on. We've ridden that road, and all of a sudden, we hit the end of that road. And we're like, we didn't mean for this to be where we are. But you didn't stop it when we had a chance. And we forget that our deliberate intention actions led us to that point. 
And so what the first point, the first thing that the writer of Hebrews points out in this passage is there is this real danger in our intentional, deliberate actions and our real danger in our intentional, deliberate sins. And so some of you guys have been with us for a while. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews and we started chapter 10 uh, last week and we worked through the first 18 verses. And the first 18 verses of Hebrews chapter 10 really deal with the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, how it is greater than any other animal sacrifice, that it can do what no other animal sacrifice can do, that it actually takes away sins versus just cover over sins. And so the first 18 chapter, or excuse me, 18 verses really deal with this superiority of Christ's death on the cross and his sacrifice. And so he spends 18 verses talking about that. And so with that theological idea, with that theological understanding of Christ's sacrifice and the sufficiency of the cross, the writer kind of turns his attention uh, to kind of the, the practicality of a part of it. Right? So uh, some of us get caught up in church knowledge and theological knowledge, and then it never changes anything about us. And so I'm going to share with you just a side note. If you are really reading your Bible and studying your Bible, if you're following our complete discipleship and you're learning about who God is, and it's not transpiring or translating into what your life looks like, then you're missing something, all right? And so what he does in chapter 10 is he kind of makes this shift. So for about the first nine and a half chapters, all the way through verse 18 of chapter 10, I mean, it has been heavy theology stuff. We have been diving deep into who Christ is, and the priesthood of Christ, the sanctuary of Christ, all this stuff. And then he makes this shift. Now, this is the difference it makes. This is the now what moment. And it really starts in verse 19, right? And for you guys that have been following along, you, some of you are underliners in your Bible. Some of you make highlights in your Bible. You're like, wait. You said verses 18 is where we stop, but now you're on verse 26, all right? And I understand that, but I'm going to save verses 19 through 25 uh, for next week because the first practical aspect of your faith in Christ should be in kind of what we've already seen, this value of coming together, this value of worshiping together as a church. Now, the reason I'm saving that until next week is because we have a church business meeting next week, and we value what we do as a church, and it translates into what we do as a church, Okay, whether it's the business of the church or the finances of the church, what we value as a church and why we value it translate into what we do. And so we're going to cover verses 19 through 25 next week. That's the first practical part of living out your faith. And so then starting in verse 26, he takes up the second practical aspect of the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And it really is this, that the cross of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Christ should change how we view sin. It should change how we live our lives, and it should make a difference. Not that you showed up and you believed all this stuff, and then you went to church, and you went out of church living it just like nothing ever happened, that you can't look at the cross and say, okay, that's good, I got it, thanks so much, I appreciate that, and you continue living like there was no difference in your life. What he tells us in this passage is that there, there should be this stark difference in the way we view sin. And one of the first differences is that we need to understand there is this real danger of deliberately sinning and, and we, that we are so quick to dismiss. I want you to look back with me in verse 26. And he starts off, he says, For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. A different translation may say, if we go on sinning deliberately, or if we go on willfully sinning 
there's no longer a sacrifice for us. And so the emphasis of those other two translations is probably correct. That We're not talking about you, you sinned one time after you accepted Christ. It is this continual sin in your life. It is this continual action that, that suddenly, um, in light of the gospel, this becomes a huge problem. You see, the, the, ver- the tense of that verb is not a one-time thing. It's this constantly living in sin, this constantly choosing sin. And, and for the gospel, in light of the gospel, this becomes a huge problem. You see, because the gospel was meant to break this cycle that was going on in the Old Testament. The cycle in the Old Testament was simply this, that I did something that, that wasn't right. I, I did something that made me unclean or unholy. And so I'm, I would go to, the sacrifice, or I'd go to the temple and I'd do the prescribed sacrifice and, and then that would cover my sins. And that covering lasted until I sinned again. Until I desired something more than I desired God. Until I put something else above Him or in, in His place. And, and so you would sin, and then you would sacrifice. And you would sin, and then you would sacrifice. And you would sin, and you would sacrifice. And so in the Old Testament, there's this repeating cycle that just happens over and over and over again. But when He comes to the Gospel, He says the Gospel was designed to stop that. The Gospel was designed to put an end to that cycle. You see, the author is telling us that after Christ, there is no sacrifice for sin. You don't go back to the temple and you don't do the sacrifices because none of them could do for you what Christ has already done for you. He and He alone can take away your sins. All the rest of them just covered them up. He can take them away, both past, present, and future. And so when we become Christians, our sin is taken away. It's not just covered over. And so there's this not repeating cycle of sinning and sacrifice, sinning and sacrifice. The cross is sufficient and it does it one time and it does it for good. And so there's this real danger anytime we think that, that, um, that we can go back and there's got to be some other sacrifice. There's got to be something else I can do. There's this real danger anytime that we think, hey, I can take the cross and I can take everything else with it. And he goes on in verse 27 and he shows us really what the real danger of this is. In verse 27, he continues this sentence that he started in verse 26. And he says in verse 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and a fury of fire about to consume the adversaries. You see, to dismiss the, saint, the significance of the sacrifice of the cross is to welcome the judgment that is poured out on the cross. To reject the sacrifice of Christ is to welcome God's wrath that was poured out once and for all, for all of our sins, on the cross. You see, we either give our sins to Him and let Him take the punishment for it, or we continue in our sins and we welcome the judgment of God. There is only those two options. And so if we reject Him, we really reject our only hope of escaping this fiery pit of hell where the adversary, where Satan and all of his demons will be tormented for all of eternity. And i got to share with you just a moment that there's, there's something great that we sometimes misunderstand about Satan in the end times. Right? And here's we talked about this in our Wednesday night class. That when it is all said and done, Satan is not the ruler of hell. Right? Let's be clear. The demons are not the ones in charge of hell. They are isolated and they are, they are tormented day and night, forever and ever, for all of eternity. Right? So, so whatever picture you had of hell being that Satan was in charge and he was giving out this punishment, that's not the case. He is judged and he is punished just like all the other angels that fell with him and just like every other sinner that chose to continue in their sins. And so when, when we end our life, we get exactly what we want. 
God doesn't send you to hell. He gives you what you want because the choice in this life is either we accept Christ, we accept the sacrifice, and we accept His forgiveness, or we choose to reject Him. And so if you reject Him, then you reject what He did for you. If you reject Him, then you reject you, you want nothing to do with Him. And that's exactly what He gives you. He gives you an eternity separated from Christ. He gives you an eternity of being tormented by the desires that you've been chasing after but never, never finding satisfaction in. He gives you this eternity void of any blessings of God whatsoever. And so you get to choose. In this life, you get to choose. And you get to choose between continuing in your sin or God. You get to choose between continuing in this sin and this rebellion, or you get to choose the knowledge of the truth. You get to continue, you get to choose between living this life where you don't want anything to do with God, or you get to choose this life where you're completely submitted to God. But the reality of the gospel is that you cannot have both. You cannot continue embracing sin and embrace the cross at the same time. You cannot continue this open rebellion of God and yet cling to the gospel. You, you cannot rebel against God, continue, 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 and yet hold on to Him and cling to the gospel and want Him at the same time that you're pushing Him further and further away. You cannot have both. You either take the message of the gospel, which has always been repent, turn away from your sins, leave them behind, and come back to God, or you continue down the road of sin for as long as it will take you there. And I'm going to share with you that when you get on that road, you travel that road, you're going to end up in a place that was an accident because you didn't mean to wind up where you wound up. But the reality is that you had all these exit ramps and you never got off the road because you continued in that scene. You see, for some of us, we've already put our faith and trust in Christ. For some of us, that we, we trusted in Christ, and we, some of us, we did that when we were kids, and for some of us, we did that as adults, and for some of us, it may have been just a few months ago, for some of us, it may have been years ago. And so here's what the writer of Hebrews is telling all of us who have been in that place. We've already trusted Christ. What he's telling us loud and clear is that your grace that you received at the cross is not a license to continue in sin. You see, that was one of the biggest charges that the Jews would look at the Christians and say, well, you don't have to worry about sin anymore. You're not concerned about sin. You don't see sin as a big deal anymore because you're not doing these sacrifices. And what he's telling us through this passage is look at the cross of Jesus Christ and it will show you how ugly sin is. It will show you the significance of sin. And so this is not a license for you to continue in sin. It's not a license for you to, 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 to stop taking sins uh, that, that you are unintentionally or unavoidably that are accidents. It, it means that you stop, you give your life to Christ and you stop this act of rebellion against Him. And for some of us it means that we need to stop giving room for mistakes in our lives. For some of us, it means that we need to stop leaving the door open that allows temptation in. And I don't know who said it, but I love this quote that I found this week. It says, temptation usually comes in through a door that has deliberately been left open. Did you hear that? Temptation usually comes in through a door that has deliberately been left open. You see, we take deliberate steps and, and, and we need to take deliberate steps. And it may be uncomfortable steps. And maybe inconvenient steps. But listen, the message of the cross, the value of the cross is so beautiful that we need to protect the mercy and the grace that's been given to us. We need to put, stop putting ourselves in these compromising situations. We need to stop leaving the door open to temptation. We need to slam it shut, nail it shut, put a deadbolt on, and never allow Satan to open that door again. But the problem is, we just leave it cracked. And when it's cracked open intentionally... Satan and temptation is coming in. 
And so for some of us sitting in this room, it's going to mean that we make hard choices. Young men and young ladies, let me tell you, the best advice that I give every young man and every young woman uh, that is dating somebody else, never allow yourself to be alone in an unguarded place with someone of the opposite gender. I don't care if you're just friends. I don't care how close you are. I don't care if you just started dating last week. I don't care what your situation is. Never allow yourself to be alone with someone of the opposite gender. Let me just uh, put that not just to the young men and women, but men in this church, never allow yourselves to be alone in a room with someone who is not your wife. And it's not because you may be tempted. It's simply because the devil is looking for any reason to ruin your reputation and your witness. Don't leave the door open. We hear all the time of, uh, of teenagers who get pregnant and teenagers who, uh, they didn't mean for this to happen. It was just an accident. And, and I share kind of this, I won't tell you all the details, of it, but my mom was a social worker for several years uh, when I was a kid. And, and so she would have these young ladies who would come in and they would be pregnant. And she'd be like, what, what, how did you end up here? And she was like, well, it was, it was an accident. We didn't mean for it to happen. And so I won't share with you all the details of the conversation that she would go through, but it was simply this, that there are things that you can do to prevent accidents from happening. And one of them is to not be in the same room with somebody of an opposite gender from you. It is not to be in a compromising situation, whether it's physically or, or, or spiritually, where you allow the door to be open. And so things don't just happen by accidents. And so for some of you, it's not that temptation. But for some of you, maybe it's your computer that, you, that is causing this door to temptation just to be open. And so what we share with you, very practical, is move it out of a private space. Move your computer. Or maybe your phone is the doorway that you've left open that has all this stuff on that shouldn't have it. Move it into a public place. Put it in your family room where your kids are playing. And maybe your attitudes and your actions will change what's on your screen. You see, maybe if gossip is your issue... Now let me give you an idea. Stop hanging around with people who want to share gossip. Here's another idea. Stop asking for all the details. When somebody shares a prayer request with you, just pray. You don't need to know all the details about it and share those details with everybody else. Just pray. If anger is your sin, then find a way to deal with it. Talk with somebody, but stop flying off the handle every chance you get. And then saying you're sorry, then turn around and do it right the same thing next day and next day and next day again. You see, so many of us are in this sin cycle and we just sin and then we ask for forgiveness. We sin and ask for forgiveness. We sin and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because we're so permissive of this sin in our life that we forgot the gospel says that you turn away from it. You walk away from it and you slam the door and you close the door so that temptation doesn't have a deliberate door to walk through. See, the cross should change how we view sin. And when we see sin is small and it's not a problem, we see it as this mistake that we just need to move past then we don't really see it as a big deal. And that's when we start to see that it really doesn't deserve punishment. And the cross is the reality that opens our eyes to the ugliness of sin and why sin produces the punishment that it does. And he starts in verse 26, or excuse me, verse 28, talking about why sin produces punishment. And he does this beautifully in verse 28, talking about the Old Testament. And then in verse 29, he connects it to the New Testament. But verse 28, he says, If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Right? So to disregard the laws of Moses means that you choose not to obey them. Right? So let me be clear. It's not that you made a mistake. It's not that there was an accident that happened that you couldn't avoid. It means that you intentionally, deliberately chose not to obey the law that was put in place. Now i got to understand something for just a moment. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament, 
there is not one of them that was designed for intentional sin. If you were caught intentionally sinning, your sentence was very clear. It was death. And it took two or three witnesses that, that would testify that this has happened. This is what was, was going on. And at the witness of those two or three witnesses, you were immediately put to death. Because in the Old Testament, there is no mercy for sin. There's no place for mercy. In the Old Testament, the law was there to preserve the holiness and the righteousness of people. And so anytime you put something else in God's place, you are actively rebelling against God Himself. And it doesn't happen by accident. You don't actively find yourself in a rebellion by accident. You put yourself on that road. You chose to walk that path. Anytime you put something else in His place, whether it be yourself or someone else or something else, you are putting something else in God's place. You made something an idol and you took His spot. And so with two or three witnesses, you were automatically put to death. There was no mercy in the Old Testament system. And then he switches to verse 28 and he opens up the New Testament. He says, listen, if you think it was bad in the Old Testament, let me show you the New Testament. I love this because there are so many folks that read the Old Testament and say, oh, God was so judgmental in the Old Testament. There was nothing but death and there was no grace in the Old Testament. And then he shows you in the New Testament. He says, listen, if you think the Old Testament judgment was bad, let me show you the New Testament. In verse 29, he starts and he gives us really these three reasons why sin deserves punishment in the, Old Te- in the New Testament. I want you to look at me. We're going to take them kind of piece by piece in verse 29. He says, For how much worse punishment do you think one who deserve, or one will deserve who has trampled the Son of God? So if someone disregards the law of Moses and they're immediately put to death because there's no mercy for sin, how much worse do you think God is going to judge them? How much worse do you think the punishment's going to be if, number one, they trample the Son of God? And so the first reason that sin deserves punishment in the Old Testament, the first thing that sin does is it causes us to reject the identity of Christ, to reject the deity of Christ. And you'll hear people who will say things like, well, Jesus was a good man, that Jesus was a good moral teacher. They'll even take it, he's a good spiritual advisor, a good spiritual leader, that he has some really good things to say. But i got to share with you that anybody that has that view of Jesus does not have the same view of Jesus that we do and does not have the same view of Jesus as the Word of God says. Because in the book of of life, in God's Word, Jesus very clearly makes claims that He is divine, that He is God Himself. Many of you will remember the story in Mark chapter 2, and it's this story that many of us learned when we were little bitty kids. It's about these four friends who saw their paralyzed friend and knew that Jesus was in town. And so they pick this man up, they pick up this blanket, and they carry this man to Jesus, but they can't get in the house because the house is so full of all these other people who are wanting to hear what this good man has to say. And so they do the only thing they can think of. They go up on the roof of the house and they tear open the roof of the house and they begin to lower their friend down through the roof of the house right there to the feet of Jesus. And this paralyzed man is laying there and Jesus looks at him. Do you remember what he says? Get up, for your sins are forgiven. And so there were some people in that room that were like, oh, you could have heard a pin drop in that moment because you don't do that. In fact, let me show you the reactions of some of the people, or excuse me, let me tell you the reactions of some of the people in that room at that moment. These religious leaders were sitting in the crowd and they're like, oh no, you, you can't do that. 
Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus, I don't know who you think you are, but you can't be this good person. You can't be this good moral person. You can't be this spiritual leader and all of a sudden start claiming the things that only God can do. And so you can't claim to forgive sins. And I want you to notice that he doesn't correct them, that, that only God can forgive sins. Instead, look at Mark chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He says to them, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? But so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, pick up, or get up, pick up your mat, and go home. You see, he makes this clear claim to divinity, this clear claim that he has the power and the authority that only God has. He doesn't tell them, no, 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 sorry, you're wrong. I can do this too. What he tells them is, you're right. Only God can forgive sins, but guess who's standing in front of you? I am him. I am divine. I am the one that you've been looking for and reading about. I have all the authority and all the power that God has. And so it's very clear that this man who is standing in front of him is much more than a man. And it's evident by the guy who got up and he walked away. You see, if he's not God, then he is a liar. And if he's a liar, then he's not a good moral teacher. In fact, none of his teachings would be worth following if he couldn't live them out. But he does. And he demonstrates them. And so to reject him for who he is and what he says he is, is to reject what he did for you and me. And so let me be very clear. The Bible is clear that if, God, if Jesus is not God himself, then he's not worth following at all. Because he lied about who he was over and over and over again. And a good moral teacher, a good spiritual example, cannot be someone who lies about who they are. And so we either accept him for who he is, or we reject him. And to reject him is to welcome the judgment that was poured out on him. You see, this mere human Jesus is not the Jesus that we worship. This mere human Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. This mere human Jesus is not worth following because a mere human Jesus cannot take away sin. You see, for some of us who are sitting here, we've been Christians for a long time, so let me give you this challenge. Don't cheapen the name of Christ and the identity of Christ by continuing in your deliberate sins. Take the power that His name possesses. Take the power over all the sins of your life and claim the name of Jesus. Let's read on in verse 29 of how much worse this punishment will give you. And he goes on in verse 29, he says, How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. See, that's the second reason that sin deserves punishment. One, it rejects who Christ is. But second, it profanes the blood of the covenant of the sacrifice. And to profane means that you treat it as common. That you treat His blood just as any other blood. That it's your blood and my blood. That, and for His blood to be no different than yours or mine creates this huge problem. Because in Matthew chapter 28 or 6, um, he's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he's getting ready to share with them this Last Supper right before he goes to the cross. And many of you are familiar with this story. He breaks bread and he gives it to them. And he gives them and he says, this is my body. And then Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, he, he pours this cup and he shares this cup with them. And in verse 28, he gives this explanation. He says, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of of sin, You see, his blood is unique because his blood is divine. And, it has not, it, and if it's not, it cannot do what it's said to do. If his blood is not special, then it cannot establish a new covenant, cannot establish a new relationship. It cannot take away sins and it cannot bring us forgiveness. 
You see, if his blood is just common, and if we treat it as just common, then it has no power over sin. It has no power to achieve anything. And for us, that means there is no redemption, there's no forgiveness of sin, and there's no power over sin. And so what people will tell you is that Jesus was just this good moral guy and this good moral teacher, and he gave lots of good advice, but he got caught up with the wrong crowd, and the Romans didn't like him. And so he died this death that has nothing to do with sin and sacrifice. That he just, in, in their words, got crushed by the wheels of history. And i got to share with you, that's not the Jesus that we have. That's not the Jesus we serve. Because the Jesus we serve, we don't profane His death. We don't profane His blood. In fact, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it in a worthy manner because we know the power that it has. And so for some of us sitting in here, we need to make sure that we know that we're not saved through the example of Christ. We're saved through the blood of Christ. We're not saved through the words of Jesus Christ. We're saved through the actions of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so for some of us, we need to quit cheapening the blood of Christ by continuing in our deliberate sins. But let me give you one last reason in verse 29 that sin deserves punishment. Let me start at the beginning of the verse. For how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled the Son of God, rejected who He is, regarded as profane the blood, rejected the blood and the works of the blood of the covenant by which He, has been, he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of of grace, the spirit of grace. And I love this passage because uh, in, in verse 29 we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, and then verse 30 and 31 we get the Father's reaction to people rejecting the Spirit and the Son. But in, verse, uh, in this passage it talks about the Holy Spirit, and the third thing that people do when they continually sin is they insult the Spirit of grace. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does two things for us. First, it convicts us of our sins. Right? And so there are a lot of people that will tell you that, that I'm a good person. The reality is there are no good people. We are all sinners. And if we deny that we are sinners, then we call Him a liar because the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin. And so when we call Him a liar, that's insulting Him. That's insulting His work. The second thing that He does is He points us to Jesus. He shows us sin and He shows us the Savior. But for some of us who don't think we have sin, means that we don't need a Savior. We start looking for salvation somewhere else. We start looking for salvation in some other place. We start looking for salvation in what we do. We start looking in salvation for, for some other option of church attendance or baptism or, or maybe giving to the church. We start looking in salvation for all these other places. And what he's telling you is there is one Spirit. And the Spirit of grace says there's only one place to find salvation. And if you're looking for it in any other place, I mean, do you think you have a better plan than the Spirit of grace does? That's an insult to him. You don't know better the, about sin or how to retain salvation than the one who designed it and created it. You see, the cross should change our view of sin. It should change how we value grace. It should never give us this license to continue sin, to, this license to cheapen His grace, to continue living in sin. You see, don't insult the spirit of grace by cheapening the grace that was given to you, by not listening to His conviction of sin. The writer wraps up this section we're talking about the judgment uh, the, in verse 27, and then he connects it to a person in verse 30 and 31. This is just judge. And we see that judgment requires a person, requires a judge. This writer makes it clear that there's a judge that we will face at the end of our life, and the judge is none other than God himself. In verse 30 and 31, we'll read both of them together. In verse 30, it says, For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay and again, the Lord will judge His people. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. In verse 30, the writer quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. And for some of you that may be my generation, maybe a little older than my generation, you are probably more familiar with Deuteronomy uh, 32 than you think you are. And not because you know Deuteronomy 32, but because when you were in school, you had to read a sermon that was based on Deuteronomy 32. At least in Stokes County we did. I don't know if anywhere else had to do this. But there was this sermon that we had to read. And this sermon that we had to talk about when we studied U.S. history and the Great Awakening. And this sermon that was preached by Jonathan Edwards on July the 8th of 1741. And this sermon that was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I remember that not only did we have to read that sermon, I don't even know if you can get by with reading sermons in school anymore or not, but we did it. And I remember my English teacher reading this sermon to me. And, and she didn't just read it like Jonathan Edwards read it. By the way, we, we sometimes picture Jonathan Edwards, if you know Jonathan Edwards, we picture this big booming voice who just broadcasts everything. And really, truth is, like he read this sermon quietly, and he even had to get the crowd quiet so that they could hear what he was saying. He, he didn't memorize this whole thing. Like He really read it, but it was so powerful. And the reason I'm bringing that sermon up is because it is based on a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And when Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, he described what it is like to be in the hands of God. And he really kind of describes all of us almost like a spider, hanging by a spider web, and God holding the end of that spider web over this pit of hell, and this pit of destruction, and this pit of judgment. And so God is really just holding the end of the string and the only thing that is keeping us from falling into this judgment, falling into this pit of hell, is God holding on to the string. And he really describes it as as thin as a spider's web. And so I want to share with you what he says in that sermon. I won't share with you the whole thing because it's kind of lengthy. But he says this, And let everyone who is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether he be old men and women, or middle-aged or young people, or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's Word and providence. And he finishes his whole sermon with this. Therefore, let anyone who is out of Christ now awaken and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of God Almighty, or of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Hasten and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountains lest you be consumed. You see, some of us had to read that passage and some of us read that verse or that sermon And we had this picture of this mighty God who was just dangling us over a pit of hell, just holding us out of this pit of hell, and at any moment could let us go. And so he preached this sermon, and people wailed. And people were broken because they knew that without Christ, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. But i got to share with you this morning, because I told you there is a choice to make. And the choice is we are all in the hands of God. It's a question of whether we fall into the hands of the living God or we are placed in the hands of Jesus our God. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus is talking with His disciples and we have this choice. We either can reject Christ and fall into the hands of the living God or you accept Christ and then you're placed in His hands by the Father. In John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29 
He says this, I, Jesus, I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all. No one will be able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. And so the question for all of us, the the choice that we have to make this morning, are you willing to fall into the hands of the living God and face the judgment that is awaiting you? Are you willing to be placed into the hands of Christ who gives eternal life for everyone who comes to Him because the Father put you in His hands. Let me remind you what's in the hands of Jesus Christ. In the hands of Jesus Christ are two scars. Because those two scars are where two nails were put in His hands and in His wrist, nailed to a cross. And so we are placed in those scars, never to be snatched away again. Because we are placed there. Because we put our faith and trust in the God who saved us through the cross. And so the question is this morning, are you going to fall into the hands of the living God and face judgment? Or are you going to allow yourself to be placed in the hands of Christ by the Father who is willing to give you eternal life this morning? You cannot choose both. And when the light of the gospel is shown on you, you have to make a choice. Because the judgment is not, did you come to church? The judgment is not, did you, did you memorize Bible verses? The judgment is not, did you give the church? The judgment is not, did you get up on stage and play? The judgment is not, did you go to Sunday school? The judgment is not, did you go to Bible study? It is one question. What did you do with Jesus? Did you reject Him or did you accept Him? Did you trample on His identity? Did you reject His blood? Did you insult the Holy Spirit? Or did you accept who He was and what He did. Turn your back from sin and come back to Him. What is your choice this morning? Let's pray together.